So I think for, it's, it's range anxiety, I think, that causes yeah, that, that, right? People think driving, that yeah. they are going exactly. to need more than they do. And then they realize, you know, like it was funny, I brought a, it's funny you bring this up. I brought, and my wife is in the business. She's my finance manager at Mitsubishi. But I brought a Tesla Model 3 last week that we, we'd taken in on trade. And I'd sent my truck off to go have some, some service work done. And so I brought it home for the night. It had, I live in North Burnaby. It's a 15-minute drive to my dealership. It had 26% range left on a Model 3. I think it was a long range, too. And I left. I switched cars with her in the morning, and I took whatever she was driving. I had the kids' seats I was dropping off at school. And she got into the car, and she phoned me in a panic. It's only 26% battery capacity left, and what am I going to do? And I thought, well, 26% battery capacity is going to get you about 100 kilometers. you got to drive 10, yeah. right? Where are you like, going? <laughs> think, of it, think of it as a quarter tank. And if it was a quarter tank, she wouldn't be worried about no. it. No. No, to get to, no, certainly not to get to our store. So it's just, it's a little, you know, we deal with this every day. We're in the business. You know, you guys are around vehicles and the aftermarket. But for your average consumer that maybe purchases a vehicle every five, six, seven years, it's this they overthink it, right? They, yeah. they definitely overthink it, it. It's not that scary. The range is usually something you can work around. Um, you know, certainly in two-vehicle two households, I don't think it's something that your average Canadian really needs to be concerned about. Welcome to EV Friendly. I'm Ken Hendricks. I'm Renee Young. And this is the podcast for you if you're looking for engaging conversations about electric vehicles. Today on the podcast, we'll be speaking with Naren McKenna. Naren is the, co is the owner of Company of Cars, a pre-owned uh, dealership in Burnaby. He's also a managing partner with Vancouver Mitsubishi. Uh, Naren also serves on the board of directors of the Vancouver Sales Authority, the Automotive Retailers Association and the Automotive Retailers Foundation. Naren, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Uh, why don't we begin, why don't you start telling us, how did you get into the automotive business? Oh, geez. I mean, that's a long story. I got into cars when I was about 17 years old. Um, I was, you know, discovered that I could sell them out of my driveway and make a couple of bucks. And was working in a detail shop in East Vancouver. Uh, with some folks that wholesaled cars, and, and I bought, I, I still recall my first car. It was an 87 Volvo, 740 GLE, manual shift, four-speed four with an overdrive, um, which is a weird configuration for a Volvo, but I bought it for $2,700. I put it in the paper for $5,400, and it sold two weeks later, and I thought, you know, 17-year-old guy, it doesn't get any better than this. Never been an easy, as easy since then to, to, to get a transaction to come together, but that was literally my introduction to the car business, and, um, and it was great. And sort of, you know, curb cars, you know, I know that's sort of a profession, if you want to call it that, that's frowned on, but, you know, curb cars for a period of time, and then had the opportunity to get right into wholesale. So um, spent a fair bit of time uh, as a wholesaler for some prominent uh, auto groups, and then... Um, you know, with some of the currency things that were going on back in, uh, you know, late, or sorry, early 2000s, 2006, 2007, car business became a little bit challenged, and I had the opportunity to, to, to get into a little lot up at the corner of Broadway, Quebec, and that was where we started Company of Cars. Um, you know, fast forward seven or eight years, we'd all grown that space, moved to Boundary, uh, across the street from Brian Jessel and Open Road Audi and some of the big boys, and got to see sort of firsthand when you have some of the big boys you know, how you have to elevate your game to compete. Okay. And so we did that effectively uh, and then had the opportunity um, right before COVID hit uh, of coming in as a partner at Vancouver Mitsubishi. Um, having never run a, a, a new car dealership, it was, a, it was a great opportunity and also, you know, something that I, I had a fair bit of blind spots about, but um, went in and, and got involved at Vancouver Mitsubishi. And that was literally on March 1st, 2020, right before COVID hit. So it's been an interesting ride, but I'm thankful to say that we're still here. And uh, business has been, you know, knock on wood, relatively strong over, the, over the, the past sort of 12 months since we've sort of all adapted to COVID. And now hopefully as we're coming out of it, there's a lot of really, really exciting things happening yeah. in the car business, yeah. so it's good. When did you sell your first EV? And, and what, uh, what kind of EV was it? Oh, geez. I, 
I'm not 100% sure. And I know you asked me the question beforehand, and I tried to recall. I'm going to say almost for certain that it would have been a Tesla Model S. Um, it possibly could have been a Nissan Leaf, but I'm pretty sure it would have been, I mean, in terms of a pure EV, right. uh, probably a Model S. Um, because we were selling them, you know, relatively early into their production. I think the first production S's were sort of 2013. Mm -hmm. So yeah. we would have been short, selling them in fairly short order after that, maybe 15. Um, you know, we were doing some financing for Tesla when they when they entered into the, the space. A lot of dealers were. Uh, they, you know, they really kind of, when Tesla came into the market, um, it was an odd approach. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a typical car dealership or franchisee type approach. And so they, they literally got into the market and then kind of, you know, I think you've heard that that, mm -hmm. that terminology a lot recently, but li literally built the plane while it was in the air. Mm -hmm. And and that's kind of how I view Elon Musk, because he had a vision. But I think, you know, this whole Tesla thing started half-baked. And mm -hmm. he's really just rolled with it and turned things that normal car dealerships or car manufacturers would would see as a, as a weakness or, or, or a, uh, something that's working against them, and he's made them into positive. So he's, he's really an innovator. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's probably in the right place in the right time kind of thing. Yeah, too. a little bit of that, a little bit yeah. of luck. But yeah. I mean, I think there's a fair bit of good management going on there too. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so in terms of new EVs, uh, we've been hearing a lot in the media now about, uh, for quite a while, about uh, you know the manufacturers, a lot of them are, are really converting their production lines into the production of EVs more and more. Some have committed to being 100%. EVs out of the production line by maybe even the end of this decade. Some are more aggressive than others. Um, so where do you see this going uh, as far as the migration to EVs, uh, the availability of them, and, and also you know, tell us about the one you know about, the, uh, the Outlander the PHEV. Out the Outlander PHEV, yeah. So wow, that, that's a lot of questions, Renee. And so <laughs> you know, back, backtrack me uh, a little up, bit because worse. there's also a lot of um, external factors going on right now that are influencing EV production, mm -hmm. all production. Um, you know, I think the, the public, most people are aware of the semiconductor issues that we're having that are causing massive disruption to supply chain for anybody manufacturing anything with a computer chip. Um, and if, you know, cars, as you know, have hundreds of computer chips, thousands in some cases. So. Um, EV production in particular is, has taken a bit of a hit. I mean, we know like, you know, our major competitor for, for, for our plug-in hybrid uh, SUV, the, the PHEV, is like the, the RAV4 Prime. Well, that vehicle is back-ordered. I mean, I don't think they're even taking orders on that vehicle anymore. So I think the real challenge with EVs and EV production, I know that manufacturers are committed to making sure that they have a model to, to satisfy demand. But I don't know if the, if the production is going to be there to support it. Um, so that's really the big challenge right now that I see from a manufacturing perspective is actually building the cars to satisfy demand. In like British Columbia's market where the government has been great at trying to create reasons and incentives to purchase EVs, you know, you're seeing huge uptick and, 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 and you know, even ourselves where we have a, a plug-in gas electric hybrid vehicle, so it's, it's working with an ICE motor and also a, a battery. Most of our customers that are currently in these are, are looking at either our new PHEV, which is coming, which has double the range, or they're looking at going to full electric. So there's also that aspect where people that are getting in kind of in a situation where they're in a plug-in hybrid are really feeling like, okay, now that I'm, I'm kind of familiar with what this is, I want to get in full tilt. So uh, it's definitely the way of the future. It's superior technology. Um, the cars are developing much more quickly than the internal combustion engine. So you're seeing those performance upgrades. You're seeing, you know, that that development happen at a much more rapid rate than I would say you're seeing it. You know, we're trying to get that last 10% out of an internal combustion engine, right? So you right. turbocharge it or supercharge it or whatever it is. And then you're constantly battling fuel prices at the same time, which just don't seem to be going anywhere but up. So in terms of future and future design, the um, the, the design of an EV itself, I mean, it alters the driving experience. Um, but for instance, uh, because it doesn't have an engine, doesn't have a transmission, it also allows for more room. So that in itself can alter the design. Using, say, the Tesla Cybertruck as an example, are we going to see, is the EV going to give way to some radically new 
vehicle designs? Or do you think, it, is it just gonna follow the same design trajectory as a gas-powered engine? Only instead of powered by gas, it's gonna be powered by electricity. I mean, if, if I had to speculate, I would, I would anticipate that it's definitely gonna influence design, um, you know, for sure, right? Because you don't have these awkward things like transmissions and uh, motors that you need to, or engines, I guess, that you need to get around, right? And the idea that you can, you know, you can distribute batteries, I mean, you know, even one of these electric vehicle bike, motorbike um, manufacturers that's coming onto market uh, locally here. I can't, the name is escaping yeah, me right now. they still put up in Syria. Correct, yeah. 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 So, so their, their design for that bike, the battery packs and everything are actually integrated into the, frame of the into the frame of the vehicle. So they've integrated their battery and supply, from my understanding, into hmm. the, the actual structure of the, of the vehicle. Um, so, I mean, you can envision that similar things are going to be happening with cars. I mean, currently, you know, they're, they're putting them in the floorboards or whatever, but really, depending on how you envision that design, you can put them anywhere, right? Yeah. You know, so I, so I would see it as having some, some impact for sure. So you touched on the demand uh, and the supply, uh, you know, and the difficulty getting stock and all that right now, or inventory uh, affected by the supply chain. Um, do you see more of your customers coming in already interested in EVs? Um, definitely. You do? Yeah, definitely. So there is a, an actual swing there, happening in the actual in consumer's mind. 80 to 90% of consumers are in some stage of considering an EV, be it a plug-in hybrid with gas because there's some sort of range anxiety, or they've got one internal combustion engine vehicle in the household and now they're ready to look at something like a plug-in hybrid or a full EV, we're seeing a lot of that where a household will have one of each. And then what we're seeing is the ones where they have one of each. I mean, I recently, a few years ago, sold a Nissan Pathfinder to, to, to some close friends of mine. His other vehicle was almost at end of life. He drove that into the ground. He purchased a Tesla Model Y. Then we were at a, a, a charity event on the weekend on Saturday and he, and he approached me, my friend Chris, and he said, you know, Naren, I'm really thinking now with the Pathfinder, which is only a couple years old, when I factor in gas and so on and so forth or whatever, maybe I'm better at looking at something like a plug-in hybrid um, vehicle that kind of satisfies the concerns if you want to do a big long road trip or go, because, you know, let's face it, places like British Columbia, Canada are vast, right? So if you want to take that trip, you still have that, 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 that cushion, I guess, of knowing that you have an internal combustion engine but all of the, the great stuff that you get with full electric, plug-in electric range, right? So in terms of the, the stress on the supply chain, obviously new, but there's also stress on the used supply as Tremendous. well, considerably. So um, picking up on that thought, uh, an EV requires far less maintenance. Um, typically? For, for, typically for the most part. So it's fair to say, I think, that there's less that I think differentiates a used vehicle from a new one uh, when you're considering purchasing a, a new vehicle. I mean, one of the reasons for opting for new, especially if you've had your vehicle now for five or even eight years, uh, was reliability. Well, it's getting older, it's gonna enter into the maintenance stage. So, I mean, outside of the, hey, I just want the new latest model and design, uh, if I'm relatively safe with a five or an eight-year-old in terms of its reliability or its maintenance, uh, do you think that can cause people to hang on to their vehicles longer? You need people coming back in, trading in their used vehicles, and, and assuming, well, they, they, maybe they just want to upgrade into the latest mm -hmm. model, um, but they also want reliability. They want it because it's covered under warranty. But it's just because of the nature of EVs that there's less components, there's less things mm -hmm. that can go wrong. There's not as much that differentiates that used one from the new then, other than style. That, that, yeah, that's interesting you touch on that because, you know, traditionally, traditional car sales, we're conditioned to believe that age and mileage are going to be the biggest, you know, in history, you know, accident disclosures, things like that, are gonna be the biggest indicator of value. Well, with EVs, it's not, and Tesla really led that charge, right? Where they're, don't worry about the mileage on the vehicle, you know, it's all about the battery because it's a computer. Right, um, so I think there is some sense of that for EV buyers that they're they're a bit different from an internal combustion engine in terms of age and mileage and and some of the things that we currently assign value to for an internal combustion engine vehicle. 
Um, so it's a different calculation. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why that is because, I mean, you know, wear and tear, I would think, would be wear and tear. But to your point, there are, you know, thousands less components to go wrong. There's really a lot less to worry about with an EV. And certainly the maintenance side of it is going to be quite a bit less. Yeah. Right. What do you yeah, well, people are just, they're holding on to their vehicles for longer. Um, I think so there's apprehension in the marketplace right yeah. now because people feel like they're not going to be able to get what they want if they go in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the media has done a great job of educating consumers about what's going on, so people are sort of aware. I mean, what we're seeing is in a lot of cases, people are, you know, you know we at Mitsubishi, our, our, our big car is, is the the PHEV, and we get a brand new version of this car that's scheduled to arrive in August. But I mean, to put in perspective, anecdotally, and I don't know if my DSM would like me sharing this, but what we're hearing is that this new version of the, the, the 2023 model year PHEV, which will be the same uh, body style and design and interior as the current model uh, gas outlander, uh, that has already been in release in Japan, just in the last couple of months. And we're hearing that that vehicles already back ordered in Japan. Um, I'm also hearing that, you know, we're starting to accumulate pre-orders on those vehicles all across Canada, and we're probably, you know, really, really quickly going to run out of cars to service that mm -hmm. demand, right? And so I, I, I would say what I'm hearing from other manufacturers certainly is if you're trying to go in and buy a RAV4 plug-in hybrid, you know, don't hold your breath. Right. Um, you know, I had a customer at end of term on a PHEV that I was reaching out to under my lease portfolio. He'd already done a deal on a Hyundai Iconic, Ionic 5, which is the new um, uh, full electric vehicle from Hyundai. Kind of cutting edge design. It looks really, really good. It's quite, quite a popular little car. Well, he put a deposit, not a lot of money, I think $500 or $1,000 to, to secure that vehicle. Thought it was going to be here, you know, in about six months. And he just got a call from me back and said, well, maybe put me on the list for this new PHEV because it sounds like it's going to be another nine months for this Ionic 5. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, currently with the manufacturers, with supply chain and all of this, the, the goalposts are moving all the time. I don't even know from my own manufacturer when I can expect cars. I've got a vague idea, um, but dates are shifting, timelines are shifting, and I think they're all kind of, you know, we've heard the, the expression many, many times. They're all trying to rebuild the, the plane in the air kind of while they're flying. So And this, and this could be with us. Now for the next few years. The, well, here's the thing. When you, when you look at pent-up demand, so as an as a, as a, as a individual selling Mitsubishis, right? If I have 25 cars in inventory and I could sell 50, well, I have that pent-up demand if I can only sell the 25 moving into the next month. So say I, have, I could sell 50 that following month and I've got 25 carried over from last month. Well, now I have 75 and I only have 25 cars. It compounds, right? It doesn't... It doesn't take a, 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 you know, a genius to figure out that if you allow that to, to, to progress for, for months or years, that that pent-up pent demand and supply chain um, challenge compounding means that people are going to be waiting three and four years for a plug-in hybrid or a, or a full electric vehicle mm -hmm. in some cases. You know, a year and a half ago when you went to Tesla to buy a Model 3, it was there in two weeks, right? Mm -hmm. If you go to their website right now, you're going to be eight months or nine months. So they're, they're, they're encountering the same kind of supply chain challenges, I think, that every manufacturer is encountering. They're just able to pivot and adapt. I mean, they've been raising their prices and moving them around to deal with the effects of inflation. I mean, there's so many things going on right now. Oh, oh yeah. It's such a complicated... Oh, well, and um, I've, I've heard of people are putting deposits down on multiple vehicles. 100%. Just whichever comes in first. Whichever comes in. Whichever yeah. comes in. So it's an unusual time. I mean, in 25 years in the car business, I've never encountered anything even remotely mm -hmm. um, like what's going on. And it's not completely isolated to EVs, but I think it's, it's, it's accentuated when it comes to EVs and plug-in hybrids mm -hmm. because that's... You know, and, and now with the, the conflict in Ukraine and Russia and gas prices, and all, it just, it's becoming more and more. I yeah. mean, you know, we're seeing, what are, what are gas prices today for premium? They're 240 or something ridiculous, something like right? That, yeah. So yeah. regular, I think it was, or went back up. You know, it's becoming prohibitively expensive to drive around an internal combustion engine, and it's not going to get any better. Yeah, absolutely. No, right? I think, I think everybody, we've had enough, of, enough experience with this now that we know that, this is just, you know, for the, for the future, well, gas prices just continue to do what they do. 
it is, and people are becoming much more uh, uh, aware of EVs and their, their potential. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the consumer awareness and, and consumer okay. knowledge. I want to take up what's been referred to as the EV lifestyle and, and that concept. And I think I would take, well, the EV lifestyle is just, this is a car that aligns with, with mm -hmm. my values. And of course, well, marketing has really picked up on that. We have commercials of a, a car going through the greeny pastures or um, loading it up with the skis up to, up to the cabin. Uh, and all that's, all that's good. Um, but that play aspect, the glamour aspect, is such a small portion of owning a vehicle. Mm -hmm. Over 80% of it is the daily grind. Going to and from work, picking up the kids, taking them to baseball practice. Well, I mean, you know, um, yes and no. Running out of gas or running, running, running very close to gas and having to make that emergency pit stop. That's a big part of the EV lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, yes and no. Um, I mean, there's two things, right? I remember my first experience with an EV, um, like really driving one or whatever. It was funny. We'd, we'd, um, I'd actually been up at Whistler on a stag. Um, so I made arrangements with my wife. I was going to go up, spend two days with the guys, you know, at this stag, and then come back, and we were going to go away as a family to a Soyuz. And I'd recently had a Tesla Model X traded it. And so I thought, well, this would be a great opportunity to get out in an EV and experience what it's like and the range anxiety and all the rest of it because I'm, I'm going on a road trip. I'm going to do a Soyuz to Kelowna, back through Merritt, and it was about a seven or an eight-day trip. So I came back from Whistler and we got in, and of course, having not had a tremendous amount of experience, I know you had Scott Waddle on the, the, the podcast a couple of weeks ago. He would have known this, but of course, I went in blind, did no research. My wife brought it home from the dealership. She plugged it in at the, the wall socket. And uh, I came back from Whistler, rendezvoused with her, feeling a little worse for wear, and uh, jumped into the Model X, and off we went to uh, Hope. She drove. I had a little nap in the side of the car. And I woke up to the thing blaring and telling me that I was going to run out of range before I got to uh, Hope. And, it, you know, that was my first experience with range anxiety and what that looks mm -hmm. like. And I mean, I was, you know, I woken up, and the, the car is telling you you're not going to make it, right? Thankfully, that wasn't the case. It starts to turn off systems and do all sorts of things. But we made it in to Hope, to the supercharger station, and took the kids into the Dairy Queen, had a, had a couple of ice creams, and came back out. And the car had 400 kilometers, and it was ready to go. And I mean, it was great. And so after that initial range anxiety, mm -hmm. understanding what I had, the value, the, the liberation that you felt at not having to visit a gas station for the entire remainder of that road trip. We went to a Soyuz, there was plugins and things to, and we didn't have to go on a big trip from there. I stayed there for four or five days and golfed and did all the stuff that you do in a Soyuz. And then we literally went all the way to Kelowna. I didn't even hit the supercharger station in Kelowna. And then off to, to Merritt and plugged in again, went into the, the, what is it, the Boston Pizza or whatever they have, another supercharger station there. and. Uh, and again, you're ready to go. Mm -hmm. And so that was actually tremendously liberating. Once you get over it and you understand how that EV is going to behave in cold weather or going up and down on hills or regenerative braking and you, you kind of get a feel for the vehicle, it, it, it's actually a tremendously liberating. I hate going to the gas station, don't you? I mean, who likes going to the gas station, right? And then, you know, I know you're paying for the, the electricity that you plug in and you, you, you pull out of the wall, but at least you're not seeing it tick there in front of you, you know, with the, yeah. it's, it's so, so for me personally, uh, driving around in an EV, if I had to drive around in one vehicle every day, it would be an EV for sure. Yeah. Or a plug-in hybrid. Yeah. You're talking about you know, understanding. That segues nicely into the next question, uh, and that has to do with the information and misinformation that is being slown, you know, slown around out there. You've got you know the so-called people that are self-proclaimed self experts that are uh, well, they're you know, everywhere chiming now, aren't in. They? Oh yes, yeah. It doesn't matter what. Yeah, <laughs> pick your subject. But uh, you know, so yeah. I mean, we've got. You know, we've talked about the the different consumer types and all that. Um, do you see? Do you think that there's a shift in the consumer awareness in this matter? Like, you know, I, I think I think there is. Um, certainly there is. I mean, you know, they're, well, first off, not, not everybody buys an EV because they're pragmatic and practical. I mean, they're, mm -hmm. you know, I just, I just sold a Porsche Taycan Turbo S last week. There's nothing practical 
or pragmatic right. about paying $200,000 for a car that goes zero to 100 in 2.9 seconds. Buying into a lifestyle. But but in a different lifestyle. So, yeah, you know, you've, you've got that family that's maybe trying to save a little. And then you've got people that really, from a pure performance perspective, understand and recognize that that EV is actually a superior, superior performing vehicle, certainly from an acceleration standpoint than your mm -hmm. internal combustion engine generally, right? Mm -hmm. So I think you've got, you know, a few different segments, right? And then, of course, you've got lower income, um, and that's why I was so pleased to see what the, the provincial government did back on February 23rd with the PSD exemption that I know uh, the ARA and uh, you folks were instrumental in, in helping to, to motivate and, and, and push along. But that's phenomenal. Now we have to do, now the job we have to do is to communicate that to the public because the vast majority of the public are unaware that as of February 23rd, PHEV plug-in hybrid vehicles and all EVs in the province of British Columbia are PSD exempt. Including so used, a, including and that's including on used. top of any other. Well, well, and this is and this is how we're going to drive lower income people and people that maybe can't afford the fifty thousand dollars, sixty thousand dollars, seventy thousand dollars spend on a brand new EV. This is how they're going to get in, right? Mm -hmm. And this is how they're going to familiarize themselves, right? Be it a plug-in hybrid or an, or an EV. So I mean, that is huge. The, the the big challenge now is getting that word out there because I think the government did it but really didn't do much to promote it or educate people other than the dealers that, they, that they'd done it. No, and you have to get the people on your lot first to begin with. I Correct. Think, I think we assume because, well, we live it, well, we know Everybody it. will know. Everybody knows it. No. But that's just not that's People not the should, case. That, well, the good example is that Ticon Turbo S, right? If you look at that vehicle, that car, the moment they made that decision was $45,000 cheaper because, of course, it's ultra luxury tax applicable. So whereas we might have 12% on a vehicle $55,000 and under, on that vehicle there, you're getting into a 26% tax bracket between GST and luxury tax on that vehicle. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge, huge incentive that the government's provided. I know they're not trying to incentivize $200,000 vehicles. They're trying to make it affordable for everybody, but they're also trying to promote adoption of the technology, right? So that starts at all income levels. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was a really great start um, you know, and, and I think it's, it's also important that they, you know, these programs or these things are accessible to all people in the mm -hmm. province of British Columbia. That's the, the, the only way to, to grow is inclusivity, and, and that's, a, that's exactly Co what... Correct. And some of the old programs made. left some of the pre-owned dealers or yeah. people doing private sales out. This strategy encompasses everybody, so I think it's a much better. It was, and trickle down wasn't going to work. No, the idea is, yeah, well, we're going to incent the top, and it's just going to trickle out and find its way down to the bottom. That strategy was never going to work, or not as not as not fast as, as not getting as fast. Not, not to twenty thirty five. Yeah. That that's for sure. No, I completely agree. And so, I, and speaking of a, a, a getting the message out and consumer awareness, um, a lot of people are held back by the big sticker price, yeah. the initial sticker price. Well, there was an interesting report that had just been produced by Clean Energy Canada and was produced by, through the Simon Fraser University Research. Um, and so what they've calculated is the cost of ownership is less over a certain period of time than for an EV than purchasing oh, sure gas. Yeah, e even though the initial sticker price is a lot higher. So it's an interesting study, and we posted it now on the EV Friendly Facebook, and you can read it. Uh, they've taken several models, uh, and then they compared it basically the like kind of their gas counterpart. And they assumed about a 20,000 uh, kilometers per year, which is about right. Yeah. And they went out about eight years, is all. Uh, and they factored in uh, gas versus electricity cost, maintenance, depreciation. They factored all this in. And basically what they conclude is that after eight years, you're probably going to spend 26% less after all said and done. Um, now, I, I thought about it, and I thought, well, that's, that's true, and that makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, well, eight years is a pretty relatively safe time in a vehicle that's still under warranty. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if you're buying new, and you're going to take that for eight years, well, you've definitely saved 26 28%, assuming you go back now and buy a new one. Well, that still hold true if I'm buying that eight-year-old vehicle and plan to keep it to 13 years old or 15 because now I'm entering, what stage am I entering into now with that vehicle? Well, it may be more true. 
right? It may be more true um, because if, if you take that same rationale and you apply that to a eight-year-old internal combustion engine, what do we know is going to start happening with that vehicle at, at the eight-year mark, right? Wow. So if your transmission fails, what's, what's that going to cost, right? Or heaven forbid you have a, a major component or something going on mm -hmm. with the driveline or the, or, or the engine. That, that's going to be significant. So I know where you're going. You're, you're talking about longevity of the battery and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. And we know that that is going to erode and deteriorate over time. Right. But it's, it's unlikely that your, your battery is just going to fail, right? And that's going to be more of a, a gradual thing. Mm -hmm. um, and depending on what somebody's use, I mean, some people don't need their vehicle to go. 400 or 500 kilometers on a charge, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's plenty of vehicles out there on a, you know, a 20 kilowatt, a 30 kilowatt battery that are going to get significantly less range. But if they're enough for the person using them, then 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 that's good. So if you walk into an EV and you kind of know what you're getting and you know, well, it's, you know, the, the battery's 20% off or 30% off, but that suits suits your needs, then that might be a that might be a good purchase for somebody still, right? Mm -hmm. At least that's my 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 thought process. I mean. Time yeah. will tell, I guess, right? We're not really, we haven't really gotten to the stage where we're seeing all out failures of batteries in full electric vehicles yet. Like, you know, I know I've heard of some Teslas being done under warranty because they've deteriorated or whatever, but um, typically those vehicles are all still holding up for the most part. And we're just hearing the horror stories. Um, Tesla battery taken to the Tesla service station, bill is 22,000. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's a legit fear if I'm buying that used vehicle, for sure. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is um, we will eventually get to the place where these batteries will be repairable. Well, th There'll is, be more Scott Waddles and Precision th th Autos this, out there. This is what I was going to say is, you know what, the, 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 the adoption of the, the vehicle has to happen first, right? And then it's just like anything else that's happened with, you know, internal combustion engines over the years, right? You know, we didn't just all of a sudden have hundreds of gas stations on every corner. We didn't have repair shops. You know, these services and these vendors and these people will come in to fill that void. People that can recondition batteries, remanufacture batteries, mm -hmm. um, will will start to pop up. New technologies will, will emerge, and and uh, it will develop. I mean, so where it's going, I don't know, but I mean, certainly, I, I would expect that you're going to see a lot of development over the next sort of 15, yeah. 20 years there. So in terms of the uh, service department side of the business, we see a lot of an evolution taking place there um, with, you know, in, in an answer to the, the advances in automotive technology, particularly with EVs. For example, with Tesla, we see they have a mobile service that they offer. There's an app that a customer can download. It can do remote diagnostics, um, a lot of things like that. Uh, so the way that we typically interact in the service department with the consumer and the car mm -hmm. is, is changing. Do you see that that is going to also require dealerships to adjust their business models accordingly? Well, it's interesting that you, you bring up Tesla's service model because, and I think I alluded to that at the beginning of the, 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 the podcast, was Tesla has done a remarkable job of taking a weakness and making it look like a strength. So... You don't have rooftops. You don't have dealerships. You don't have people to service your car. We'll send people out to you. Well, really, you're you're masking the fact that you don't have a service center that you can take your vehicle into, right? I, I you know, and this is not that long ago. I know they started to adopt more of a traditional dealership model and started to open up uh, some stores. But uh, I mean, as recently as nine months ago, I had the the Tesla repairman at my showroom, and they literally had a a car in pieces in my showroom, repairing it right right in the showroom. And so. Um, I don't think that's an ideal um, for, a, for a dealership. I don't think it's an ideal for a consumer necessarily either. I mean, sure, it's great that they can do over the waves, um, you know, over Wi-Fi software updates, and certainly that is the future of uh, cars, vehicles in general. I mean, you know, you alluded to their app or, or discussed their app. We have a similar app for PHEV that will tell you all sorts. I mean, that little car is so smart. Um, that app will tell you all sorts of stuff, and you can start it up and pre-warm it while it's plugged in and do all sorts of things. It, it can do some diagnosis and look at range and give you all sorts of stats on what you're, what, what you're driving is and what kind of um, efficiency you're getting. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, yeah, I mean, every manufacturer is going to be looking at tethering their, 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 their car's computer to some sort of an app interface and keys and 
that, that's definitely the way it's all headed. Yeah. Um, but where, where mobile service and that type of thing is concerned, I, I don't see that really catching on the same way. Certainly EVs are gonna require less traditional maintenance, but brakes, tires, steering components, uh, and then when something does break, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of technology happening other than the internal combustion engine in those vehicles. Those those things will still need to be repaired at a proper repair facility. Well, but the the you know the dealership model traditionally has relied quite a bit on the profits on, made in the, the parts profit. and labor yeah. uh, from the service department. Um, so you know if there is less maintenance, uh, you know is, is that going to cause an issue? where that traditional source of revenue may be shrinking, or will it? Well, you know, yes and yes and no. I mean, if, I'll give you a good example. I had a Maserati Levante, late, late model, 2017, only 22,000 kilometers on it. I had a customer on an overnight test drive. This is three months ago. Went to go to pull onto the highway and the thing just stopped. Pulled over, we called roadside assistance, had it towed in. My service department phoned me and said, this, this engine is seized. So I said, how is that possible? It's only 22,000 kilometers. It was just in at Maserati. Uh, so I phoned the, the Maserati Ferrari dealer and explained to him what was happening, sent it over there. We had it diagnosed by them. Uh, I asked Justin, their service advisor, sent me over uh, an estimate on what that was going to cost to repair. It was, uh, was $48,000 for that Maserati motor. Now, if you take it to that dealer to have it repaired, certainly under warranty, had it been, it was a couple of months outside of warranty, unfortunately. Mm. Um, but, you know, if, if it was in warranty, they're not going to go in and try to diagnose what's going on with your motor. They're going to replace it. So I would say that that's akin or more expensive to replacing, say, a battery pack or something that would be like a major component in an EV. So, you know, from, from that side of it, I don't know that from a profitability perspective, a dealer, and again, I don't know what their margins are on parts or whatever, I don't know that the profitability of changing out a battery pack in a, in a EV versus changing out the motor, that there's any difference mm -hmm. for, 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 for a dealer, or that it would be a huge difference. And I would say the bread and butter of most service departments really is that, that, that traditional maintenance. And things like oil changes are or, or lost leaders. I mean, we don't make money on oil changes and things like that that we consider to be typical maintenance. You know, some, a little bit on filters and some of the things that you're required, but, you know, brakes are still going to be required, tires are still going to be required. You know, things are going to break and we're going to have to fix them. It so, brings the customers back yeah, in, though, which is yeah. also important. Well, yeah, I mean, at a certain point, you rely on that service department because a customer, every customer, of course, is going to be different, but a lot of them are like, I don't want to spend $3,000 on a service bill at this point. I'd rather mm -hmm. just get into a new vehicle and carry on. Now, the innovation is not just going to be in the service. Um, it can also be on the sales side. Now, you alluded to that Tesla is the master of uh, at least putting a spin on the fact that they don't have many <laughs> franchise dealerships around, mm -hmm. which hence the, the, the mobile. On the sales side, though, it can make sense uh, because the more people switch to online sales of vehicles, they can... Mm -hmm buy a vehicle, they can finance their vehicle, they can do everything. Mm -hmm. That actually limits the need to have multiple franchises, doesn't it? Because they can buy a vehicle online and it can be delivered anywhere. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I believe other manufacturers are experimenting with that model in, in, um, in uh, Europe right now. So, you know, there are some manufacturers that are literally doing online sales and then you know, depending on um, where you live, you're going to be assigned a dealer and then they'll deliver that car to you and presumably get that service and all of that stuff going forward. And then they're, they're paid some sort of a fee uh, for, for that delivery. So, you know, what does the car business of the future look like? Certainly it could go towards something like that. I think COVID has been a great educator for all manufacturers. As we've gotten into supply chain challenges, they've come to realize that if you don't inundate the market with cars, in some ways it's better for everyone, right? Because the, the square footage required to, to store those cars, the money required to, 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 to floor those cars, it's significant. And so, you know, I, I'm hearing rumors of like Toyota going to a, like a just-in-time type model um, where people literally order their car and it shows up a couple of weeks later and they come in and they take delivery. You know, Tesla really was the pioneer for that. They got people to... Um, 
adopt that, that, that vehicle sales could be done in that fashion. But then COVID has accelerated because literally we're all in kind of that situation. Um, I'm down to my last two plug-in hybrid electric uh, 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 PHEVs, uh, and I won't see any more until August, right? So, I mean, what are we? We're, we're beginning of April, May, mm. June, July, and that's our best seller. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I think that that is probably the way the market is going to go. I think it's better for everybody. Um, and it's more transparency, I think, for the consumer. I mean, certainly at our store, we're shifting towards digital retailing. So a customer goes to Vancouver Mitsubishi. That customer can log in, see exactly what I have in inventory or incoming or pre-order, and they can break down, customize, add in warranty products, uh, protection products, accessories, whatever they want to put on that car, uh, customize their term, and build exactly a deal. And they can literally come into my store and say, this is my deal. I want, a, I want this car. I want, I want to order it. Or okay. it's in inventory or whatever. And I just sign and, 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 and that's it. So let's put your used car hat on okay. for a minute. Um, how can the independents follow this model? Or can they even, both on the service and on the sales model that we discussed, can they capitalize on this even if it's on a small scale? Or capitalize on EVs? They'll capitalize on the changing service models and the changing sales models. Um, or are they going to continue to operate as they kind of always have? I, you know, I think you're always going to find, um, you know, dealers all operate differently. Um, as I've, mm -hmm. you know, 25 years in the car business, I've, I've learned that there's a million different ways to do this business, and they're all different. Um, and one is not necessary. I mean, the one that, that's right, I guess, is the one that leads to the happiest customer and, and the, the most volume sales, right? Like, that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of what we're, we're all shooting for, right? We want to have the happiest customer, repeat referral business, and, you know, obviously have our volume there where the, where the manufacturer wants to see it. Where pre-owned is concerned, um, I see it naturally, you know, obviously it's, it's going to naturally trickle down into that right. segment of the business. Um, I, I'm currently aware that there are pre-owned dealers that are fixed price. Um, there are pre-owned dealers that are, um, you know, you look at uh, Julian. Julian uh, Sale Motorized. Julian yeah. Sale over at Motorized. Yeah. I mean, completely, you know, that's all he does over mm -hmm. in, on the island. Right. Um, so, you know, there are pre-owned dealers. And, and I've, I've recently had discussions on the company of car side with some of my folks. Um, if I was a young person getting into the car business, pre-owned or new, mm -hmm. I would be making sure that I'm injecting myself into that EV specialist zone, and I would be trying to carve that out as my area. Like if I was a young broker or somebody trying to develop a business model, I would be focusing on Tesla. I would be focusing, because the, the, the folks that are into that technology can be almost fanatical about it. Right? So the ability to really build support and enthusiasm around what you're doing is huge with EVs because you have so many people that are really, really interested in it and really, really watching it. Like, I don't know if you guys are aware, but I'm, I'm members of all these, you know, EV and Tesla groups on Facebook and stuff. And it's, it's unbelievable the amount of chatter and talk. Like, these are very, very, very engaged customers. We see it every day on yeah. the TV-friendly Facebook and the YouTube channel. I'm not surprised. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's just it's a really engaged uh, segment of the the car buying population yeah. that you have a window right now to capitalize on because in 10 years time it's just all going to be EVs and plug-in hybrids for the most part anyway, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got a, a a window right now to really inject yourself if you, in, in pre-owned or new, and 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 cut a cut a kind of a, a personality or a segment where you are the specialist, right? So that segues nicely into the next question. We've talked about the level of awareness and knowledge in the consumer. What about for the salesperson? I just read an article that someone wrote the other day uh, about their experience when they went to ask at a dealership about an EV and the salesman basically told them, you don't wanna buy an EV, they're way too expensive and they're hard to get. And I couldn't help but think, okay, is that salesman? Well, trans that what translation, I don't have any. Well, that, or, or. It wasn't your team, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, well, it, it may have been. I've only got two left, but. Or, um, or he was, you know, not up to speed with it himself and didn't want to go there because didn't want to look stupid, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, so what is, you know, do you see progress, you know, in tandem with the consumer awareness and knowledge? 
do you see our, the salespeople? Are they also raising their level of awareness and understanding? My, my, my salespeople. More training needed? <laughs> my salespeople are. Um, I'm not sure what happens on other um, dealership Salesforce, but. Well, is training something oh, worthwhile? A hundred percent. Is it something, is, is, is this whole thing new enough that it does require specialized training just to deal with the EV customer? Well, Renee, you know what I would say is that, and, and to some degree that's always been the case, but I would say in most cases that customer is coming in and they know more about certainly what else is on the, on the market than, than our product advisors do. I hate to say that, but that's the reality because they're doing their research and there's such a, a huge amount of information that's available out there. So people are really, because it is a new technology, they're not, it's not like, well, I'm just getting another gas car. It's a whole new thing for them in the, mm -hmm. for the most part. And so folks are really going out and, uh, and educating themselves on what the differences are. And in some cases, I think the, the, the salespeople and the folks that are actually selling this stuff need to elevate themselves. I think they will. Um, but in most cases, I would say the consumer knows more than, more than you do. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, is that the best sales model? <laughs> well, also, is the salesperson selling them based on whatever they seem to want? Or is it maybe what the government is telling you know, the public to do? Or is it actually trying to I, get them into the car that's right for them? Because another, another article I wrote, or wrote, <laughs> another article I read said that you know, a lot of people automatically think, well, I gotta get the one with the, the, you know, the biggest, biggest range, range and all that. Yeah. You, you alluded to this earlier. It doesn't necessarily mean that because you know, people don't seem to realize, and a lot of them don't realize that you, know, you can charge your vehicle while it's sitting idle overnight and it'll meet 80 to 90% of your regular needs. It's only when you go on that long trip Correct. that you gotta worry about are there enough change, charging stations along the way. Correct. And you can plan according. There's the Flow app and all that. You know, you can say, okay, I can make it, this is where I gotta be today to, to you know, to get to the next charging station. So, I, I, what I, are the salespeople doing? Are to they I, totally, I totally agree um, in the sense that I think a lot of people are overthinking it, right? Like mm -hmm. you don't need 400 kilometers of range for most people, especially yeah. if you have a, you know, we alluded mm -hmm. to this earlier in, the, in, the, in the, the conversation, that if you have a secondary vehicle or a bigger SUV or something, and, and you have another car for commuting, you know, maybe a spouse that, you know, works downtown, you live in the, the valley or something, you know, but you, you're maybe only going 150 kilometers or 100 kilometers. You never need that extra range. It's, 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 it's silly to pay for it, probably, right? Uh, and, you know, unless you're talking about well, something yeah. like resale. Because that costs more money, to, Correct. you know, you, to buy that upscale model. Yeah. Are you ever going to recoup that? So I, so I think for, it's, it's range anxiety, I think, that causes yeah, that, that, right? People think that yet. they are going exactly. to need more than they do. And then they realize, you know, like it was funny, I brought a, it's funny you bring this up. I brought, and my wife is in the business. She's my finance manager at Mitsubishi. But I brought a Tesla Model 3 last week that we, we'd taken in on trade. And I'd sent my truck off to go have some, some service work done. And so I brought it home for the night. It had, I live in North Burnaby. It's a 15-minute drive to my dealership. It had 26% range left on a Model 3. I think it was a long range, too. And I left. I switched cars with her in the morning, and I took whatever she was driving. I had the kid seats. I was dropping them off at school. And she got into the car, and she phoned me in a panic. It's only 26% battery capacity left, and what am I gonna do? And I thought, well, 26% battery capacity is gonna get you about 100 kilometers. You gotta drive 10, yeah. right? Where are you like, going? <laughs> think, of it, think of it as a quarter tank. And if it was a quarter tank, she wouldn't be worried about no. it. No, no, to get to, no, certainly not to get to our store. So it's just, it's a little, you know, we deal with this every day. We're in the business, you know, you guys are around vehicles and the aftermarket. But for your average consumer that maybe purchases a vehicle every five, six, seven years, it's this, they, they overthink it, right? They, it they definitely overthink it, it. It's not that scary. The range is usually something you can work around. Um, you know, certainly in two, two vehicle households, I don't think it's something that your average Canadian really needs to be concerned about. Yeah. So in, um, in BC, uh, we are leaders in EV sales in North America. So uh, the government, um, Energy and Mines uh, just released their 2021 report. So we've hit our 13% new vehicle sales target for 2021. 
Um, so well, well positioned for the 20, I think it's the 2025 or 26 target. Um, and a recent study has just um, been conducted by Angus Reid and it reports that about 80% of those that responded are considering an EV as their next vehicle. Mm -hmm. And 75% though of those respond support current government incentives mm -hmm. uh, and, and policies. Uh, now, BC has, and you alluded earlier, has just recently came out with their PST exemption, mm -hmm. uh, which was very welcome news. And that's including on the, the, the uh, new vehicle incentive they already have. Um, the federal government has now committed, I think it's 1.7 billion uh, over the next several years to their new vehicle incentives. Um, but I guess my question for you, are the incentives working? Oh, I think so. Definitely, definitely. Um, you know, I would look at Tesla as being the biggest example of that. But back when that vehicle was priced at 52000 I believe, so you could go in and you could get a Tesla Model 3 Standard Range Plus, $52,000 stock, you know, and they're no charge collar, no charge interior, base wheels, you know, those hubcappy looking things. So not the best looking version of the car, but certainly all the technology, all the range for the most part, I mean, it's not a long range, but I mean, certainly more than enough range all the tech, all the big screen and the gadgets, the performance, all of that. 52 less, I think it was eight, was the rebate. You could buy that car brand new for $44,000 or $45,000. I mean, that is mm -hmm. unheard of value. Now, they've had to raise the prices, but even on our, our, our plug-in hybrid um, EV here, and this is, again, this is our, our current model that we're, we're run out of, or we're almost out of, um, that we're not going to see a replacement for until August. But this vehicle here qualifies for a $1,500 ISEF rebate. So that's a federal rebate that the government does. And you know, please, my, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm getting these backwards. But the ISEF rebate is $1,500. You get that from the federal government. And uh, it qualifies for an additional $2,500 rebate. So even that $4,000 rebate is a huge incentive for people purchasing mm -hmm. this vehicle. You move that up to a full electric and the additional range and the bigger rebate, it gets, it gets as high as I think, and you probably know better than me, Ken, but I believe it's about an $8,000 rebate total between the mm -hmm. provincial yep. uh, rebate, the clean energy for BC uh, rebate, yep. and, then the, um, uh, and then the ISEV rebate gets up to $8,000. So that's a huge incentive. And it has to be a certain, the smart thing that they did about that is capping the value of the car. So you can't go in and buy it $200,000 Porsche mm -hmm. and, and get a rebate. That, it doesn't qualify, but it's there. To, it's designed to incentivize people that are, you know, medium, you know, upper income, but not rich, you know, to, to, to look at purchasing that vehicle for that extra yeah. added bit. And I would think it's definitely been a huge incentive to drive, uh, you know, so purchasing. what would the gas model equivalent of that run? As, as far in terms as the, of what's the difference? Well, what's the, no, the MSRP. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, by the time you factor in the rebate, you get most of it back. You factor in a little well, bit of maintenance. That's where and I was going. hundred percent. You yeah. take the and rebate so, and the PST yeah. off of the electric yeah, I mean, version. British Columbia and Quebec have both done a phenomenal job of promoting that. And that's why, I th again, I don't know what Quebec's numbers look like, but I think if you were to look, pretty close to they'd be similar, right? Behind. So they've done a yeah. good job. Uh, the BC provincial government has done a great job and mm -hmm. continue. I mean, the, the announcements around PST are phenomenal as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think that British Columbia is going to be a mecca for adoption of, of EV uh, and plug-in hybrid it's, technology. It's moving looking forward. that way. What else, can, uh, what else can be done? What else could the government do? Um, mm -hmm. Thinking outside the box, what other sort of incentives could be out there? Wow. Not just for the consumers, but for but, maybe but dealers. But for industry as well. I mean, we have to get industry on board. Uh, especially in the aftermarket. Well, that's what the whole EV friendly thing is about recognizing that we're talking about the whole life cycle of the vehicle, mm -hmm. not just the initial sale. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, where the rest of the aftermarket, um, you know, segment is concerned, I'm not. I'm not sure. I mean, they could look at similar PST exemptions on new vehicles, possibly. Um, you know, like 
things like the the uh, CEV for BC or the ISEV, you, you know, they cap that for people as well, right? So the challenge with those types of programs, you get it, you get it once, and once you've done it, you, you can't use it again. Mm -hmm. um, whereas things like PST exemptions on um, all electric vehicles, that just stays with the vehicle until, right. well, I think they capped it, I think it's 2027 that they're gonna look at that program. And the program runs till 2027. Uh, again, yeah. and whether they extend it or, right. or, or stop it. Right. You know, hopefully we don't have abuses of that program, um, you know, because that's the other thing that we know about, um, you know, folks is, is that you introduce these problems and you find, or introduce these programs and you find people that will find a way to game them or corrupt them or whatever. So I'm hoping that that's not the case. Yeah. Um, you know, with the uh, PSD exemption, because my concern there is that we, you know, if people do find ways of corrupting it, that we lose it. Mm -hmm. And I think it is a massive incentive. So perhaps they could look at some sort of similar incentive on new. I don't know. Yeah. Um, Another thing is like there's hydro rebates on appliances that consume less energy. Mm -hmm. Maybe they could put a rebate out on uh, charging stations. Yeah. And home chargings. Yeah, I, I, you know, or... Or charging station on your lot. So would a... Or a certain amount of gas tax. I mean, <laughs> there's there's lots of, I mean, I, I should, sorry, folks. I, sorry to even suggest that we should increase gas prices, but, um, you know, that's another, you know, if you're trying <laughs> to incentivize to people to move away from this and into that, that mm -hmm. that's another way that you could potentially do it. So sales targets, uh, they're... Some fairly aggressive. I would have thought two years ago they're way too aggressive, almost conservative, in in, in certain uh, certainly certain urban centers and things yeah. like that. We might even exceed those. What are your thoughts about the 2030, 2030 and twenty thirty five sales target? So by twenty thirty, uh, they want to have what was it? Refresh my memory. So, so on twenty thirty ninety percent will be the target of all new vehicle sales in twenty thirty five. Right across Canada, 100%. No I, new gas cars sold. You know, I, I recently did my budgeting for Mitsubishi, and you know the budgets look good. But I remember saying to my DSM, "As long as you guys can get me the cars." Um, and so I would say that that's the same thing I would say about that target. Really, it's on the manufacturers because I think I think the consumer, certainly in in areas like British Columbia, where there is this 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 large adoption and people really seem to be open to it, you can hit that target, provided the manufacturers support production of getting those vehicles out there. I don't know why that's currently not happening, because I think that one of the biggest challenges we're having is just we don't have the vehicles. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're back-ordered for three years or four, like, I don't think they're even taking orders on a RAV4 Prime anymore, right? So you have hundreds, thousands of people in the province of Canada or province of British Columbia and in Canada that want to purchase those vehicles that can't, right? So the numbers so, might, so might be the num better. numbers might be much much higher. Mm -hmm. You if know, certainly was... right now everybody's going around trying to trying to just buy anything um, if they need a vehicle. If you're in a lease and you're coming in to term or what, you need a vehicle. You might be buying a, a, an internal combustion engine simply because you don't have the choice to buy something different. Yeah. So th the onus, I think, is on the manufacturers. To make sure that they can they can get these 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 vehicles built because certainly in markets like British Columbia, the the, the desire is there, um, and maybe the opportunity for governments is is looking at ways to support manufacturers in doing that. I mean, logic tells you that manufacturers would want to manufacture things that people want to purchase. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know why we're not seeing more of them, um, but production's you know that's not my not my specialty so. Now the next few years will probably tell that tale. Correct, correct. And I mean, I don't know what starts happening as you start getting into 90% adoption. Well, then what happens to, you know, the, the 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 resources that are necessary to start putting those batteries together, and what kind of a what kind of a supply chain crunch does that put on things like that? Right? Like you know, you 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 start talking about resource issues then, right? So yeah. you know, you're thinking about things that are much bigger than me. <laughs> So in this whole migration to uh, electric, what, what do you see as the role of the dealership? What role can the dealers play in facilitating the transition to electric? I mean, I think it's already happening. 
Yeah, it's um, you know educating our, our product advisors, um, making sure we understand what's what's coming down the, the, the pipe. But you know, I, I don't think dealerships have ever been in the position of dictating to the public where the, where they need to go. The public dictates to us, right? Um, as much as I think that a lot of people might tell you differently when they walk into a car dealership, good car car dealerships are the ones that are going to be around certainly 20 years from now are listening to the, the customer first and then figuring out how to, how to you know, you're trying to figure out how to position yourself for where your consumer is going to be four or five years from now when they come back wanting to purchase a vehicle. And so, you know, obviously that's going to be, you know, plug-in hybrid and electric vehicle related. Mm -hmm. And so how are you going to be there when, when, when they arrive? So where can somebody uh, see the new PHEV, uh, where is Vancouver Mitsubishi going to be in the well, next few months? Well, I mean, we're, 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 we're currently up at 1885 Clark Drive, just, uh, just off of First Avenue or Terminal. Mm -hmm. um, the, the new PHEV, in fact, it's interesting, I'd, I'd had a, a conversation with my rep, and we shot it all the way up the, the flagpole to Japan, trying to get a pre-release car. So we have uh, the Formula E event, the, the, yeah. the race that's occurring in Vancouver over the July 1st long weekend it, coming It is, up. yeah. We will and be there as well. Ex exactly. So I'd reach out to the organizers. Actually, I'd reach out to you first, Ken, to yeah. try to get some inroads there, and you put me on the right path. Uh, I had some discussions with them. So that sounds like a phenomenal um, project. In Don't fact, I, I think it's going to be the coming out party for Vancouver as far as events. We're all tired of COVID, and we want to get back out. To, yeah, so I think there's a lot of people really excited. I was hoping to get an early release car because they're going to have uh, a section over by, um, I think, the Park Casino uh, and over by the sort of, what is that, the old Plaza of Nations area mm -hmm. from Expo. That's exactly and they're going to have an area yeah. where there's going to be different manufacturers and different plug-in hybrid and electric vehicles that people can, uh, can drive and test drive. But they're going to have a few different lifestyle areas and, and, and spots for, for manufacturers and, and dealerships yeah. to promote their product. But it looks like it's going to be a phenomenal it's, party. It's, it's going to be great. Unfortunately, and Japan told me they're not going to get me a car, but, oh. you know. And down to my last two PHEVs, so my, my question is, do I hang on to that one PHEV so I can show the old technology at the Formula E race or, or yeah. sell it and just, you know, be down there in spirit with, you know, some brochures? I don't know. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and a good plug for the, uh, for the foundation. Uh, eFormula will donate 10% of any Grand Prix ticket uh, sold right. through, through the ARA link, and that money goes towards the uh, EV Friendly EV Bursary Scholarship to train people uh, at either BCIT or one of the other colleges. I forgot. I forgot that you. Yeah, yeah. I forgot that we did another. Um, yeah. Another bursary. So yeah. Yeah. yeah so right. uh, check out the EV Friendly website or Facebook uh, for that link, and uh, hope to see everyone out. Um, so in closing, Naren, just final thoughts. We ask all our guests this: um, Where are we going to be in? Where are we going to be in five to ten years? Where are we going to be? Um, in terms of EVs. In terms yeah, of yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, well, if you'd asked me the, the the question five years ago, I certainly couldn't have predicted the last um, twenty four yeah. months. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we're going to be in a much a much better place. Um, Hopefully, you know, our supply chain and, uh, you know, superconductor problem is, is, is a distant memory. And we've got production and things back on track. And we're there to support what consumers actually want, which is um, plug-in hybrid and electric vehicles. Um, and I think we're going to have much um, broader comfort around things like range. And certainly technology is going to develop. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you know, within the next five years, we're seeing cars with eight and nine and a thousand kilometers of range on a single charge. I don't think that that's, that's too out there um, to, to think. I mean, certainly you have some, some folks coming into the luxury end of the segment like uh, Lucid or some of these things that are, that are putting out Lotus, I mean, as another car manufacturer that, you know, f for anybody that's an EV fan or, 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 or looking at emerging um, manufacturers, you know, look at Lotus. I mean, they're doing some phenomenal stuff with EVs. And, and there's lots of manufacturers that are looking over the next sort of five years even at, at being completely EV, some, some of the smaller ones, right? So I think, you know, when you talk, uh, Renee, about, you know, the mall having adopted EVs across the board, I, I, I think certainly that that's, there's no question. I mean, if you're a manufacturer and you're not 
producing EVs and plug-in hybrid vehicles in the next five years, you're, you're you get, you know, you better sell, you better sell the franchise. Yeah, you're in sunset um, mode. Yeah, yeah, right. You're, you know, you're Pontiac. Um, but, uh, but those that do um, and and do so effectively, um, you know, that's that's where we're all going to be. I mean, so I so I see that's it's it's there's no question it's the future. There's no question. Aaron, thanks for coming on the uh, podcast. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. If you have enjoyed uh, today's episode, uh, please uh, check out our EV Friendly Facebook and YouTube channels, like and subscribe. And for those of you that can catch a full episode, catch EV Friendly on the go. That's our audio podcast available on Spotify or wherever you download your podcasts.